listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. and welcome to episode 33 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I have an interview with Priya, mum to triplet girls, but sadly she only got to bring one of her babies home with her. We talk about some of the terrible decisions she and her husband were faced with during her pregnancy, how she struggled to prepare for the birth of her babies, not knowing how many of them that she would be able to, to bring home and about grieving while parenting for the first time. We also touch on the taboo subject of baby loss, and it's being a particular taboo in the Indian culture that she grew up in, and how this affected both the support during her pregnancy and also her grief um, and decision to, to speak out and talk about her children. Before we get into that, I just wanted to give you a quick podcast update. Um, If you're a regular listener, you may remember that a few weeks ago, I put out a call for volunteers to help me, particularly over the next few months, um, continue putting out the podcast. Um, And that's because I'm currently expecting my rainbow baby. And I think Hopefully, if it all goes well, <laughs> you know, when we don't take anything for granted, I don't think, in the baby loss world. But um, I think, you know, I don't underestimate the struggles of having a newborn and trying to juggle that with literally anything else in your life. So I am very much trying to get ahead of things. And I ask for some volunteers to help me to do that so I can continue putting out weekly episodes of the podcast. And I'm delighted to say that thanks to some fabulous people who have come forward and volunteered to both host and to edit the some episodes of the podcast, I, I should be able to continue putting out weekly episodes for at least the next few months. Um, and I am really hugely grateful to those people. I will be introducing the guest hosts to you on Instagram over the next week or so. Um, And I might do a sort of an an announcement and a shout out next week once I've got things a little bit more sorted. Um, So I also want to give a huge shout out to my Patreon supporters, because again, um, it does cost money to produce the podcast. And certainly when I'm thinking about it in terms of uh, producing it long term, then I probably will need to some help with editing which I would like to pay someone to help me to do um and you know the the support from my patreons or my patrons my patrons <laughs> gosh that sounds very posh doesn't it my patrons um can help me not only cover the the sort of hosting and production costs of producing the podcast but also hopefully help me to pay an editor so that I can I can keep on doing this really because I I really want to I think it's really valuable and I know that you know a lot of you listening find it really helpful and useful to to listen to um, and I think it does help raise awareness of baby loss and the longer I can keep doing that for the better so if you would like to support the podcast then you can become a Patreon supporter from just a few pounds a month and depending on what level you support at there are various different benefits that you can access including exclusive content um you can have your baby's name added to my book of remembrance which is now live on the podcast website um, and I'm planning to do something during Baby Loss Awareness Week to remember the babies of podcast supporters. So if you would like me to include your baby um, and support the podcast, of course, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash footprints on our hearts. And I'll also put the link to that in the show notes and you can find the link on the podcast website. Right, without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. I really enjoyed chatting to Priya. um, And actually, she is one of my editors and did edit this episode. So double thank you, Priya, for both coming on the podcast and doing your own editing. (laughs) Maybe I should get all my guests to do that. (laughs) 
anyway, I hope you enjoy this and have a gentle and relaxing weekend. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Priya, who's mum to triplets, but sadly only got to bring home one of her daughters. Welcome to the podcast, Priya, and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Alison. No, thank you for having me. It's a it's a great honour. Brilliant. And you're a doctor, I believe, and I think your husband's a doctor too. So you're both pretty much immersed in the medical world. So I wanted to start by asking you if you had much awareness of baby loss before you got pregnant with your girls. So he's now a GP. I'm a GP trainee. I'm uh, about a year from finishing. Um, And yes, I have had a fair bit of experience in obstetrics and gynecology, so women's health. Um, So, you know, in in my foundation years after qualifying, I did an obstetrics job and I loved it. Um, And actually, I took a year out after that and continued to work in that same area. And through his GP training as well, he's done a a similar sort of obs and gynae job. Um, So we have had um, experience of it before. But I think, uh, I think that experience, like now when I look back on that, I feel like I had, I just wasn't qualified enough to give, um, uh, you know, make management decisions and things like that. And even speaking to parents, I think I, I, although I don't think I did it badly, I don't think I truly understood what those parents were going through. Um, and so now if I was going to go through that, counselling patients and things again, uh, again, I just think I would have so much more empathy and uh, yeah, I just think I would truly, truly appreciate a lot more what they were going through. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it is, it's one of those things that you, you can't really fully understand until you've been through it. Um, and I do think that makes, you know, that kind of support from that parents can get from someone who has been through it does make it even more valuable. Yeah, yeah. But when did you guys think about starting a family and how was your journey to get pregnant? So, I mean, we've always, uh, we, we love kids and we've always wanted to start a family. In fact, we thought that we would probably start a family after both of us had finished our GP training. We thought that that would be the sensible thing to do. And actually, as I, um, I was doing a lot of work in fertility as part of my, uh, GP training, I just became more and more paranoid about my fertility. <laughs> so um, we just thought, you know what, what what exactly are we waiting for? I don't think there's ever an ideal time. And so we just decided to go for it. Um, and, you know, that phrase that people use of we weren't exactly trying, but we weren't not trying at the same time. So we just, we fell into that. And actually, we were so lucky that it didn't take us long to conceive at all. Yeah, so it was, it was that side of, was a, of it was a complete relief. Yeah, and then we were just on cloud nine after that. Yeah, and when when did you find out you were expecting triplets? And how did you feel when you heard that news? So we found out at about, about nine weeks. Um, so, you know, we'd been living on cloud nine and it... Every, got sort of got brought back down to earth because um, I remember it very clearly. We, I, we were at my parents' house, uh, you know, mum had made a lovely dinner and I'd gone to the loo and had some bleeding. And I think I, I felt time stop then because I suddenly realised that, you know, this pregnancy could be ending. Um, and, you know, that's we ended up having an early pregnancy scan the next day. Um, and that's when we found out we were having triplets. And it was just, I had completely prepared myself that there wasn't going to be a pregnancy at all. I Bleeding hadn't been particularly heavy, but I knew from having counselled lots of women in the early pregnancy clinic myself, I knew that I had to have sort of a sensible head on uh, and try to keep check of my emotions um, and, you know, just expect the worst so I just remember lying there on this couch and all I wanted to know was that there was a heartbeat I, I you know nothing else really mattered 
And I just remember it felt like an absolute eternity. Um, this sonographer, you know, just looking at the screen. They, they don't say very much, do they, when they're, they're doing that? I guess they're concentrating. Um, and I guess maybe if you, like if there had just been one baby there, they might have been quicker to reassure you. I guess so, but, yeah. But yeah, but I think there's this whole, they must have been going through this like, oh my goodness, there's trips. And maybe they'd even forgotten the whole fact that you'd come in because you were bleeding and that you'd be sitting there panicking that, you know, or worrying that, you know, you didn't have a living baby in there. I remember sort of looking at Ricky and, uh, you know, wondering if he could see the screen slightly, you, you know, not that not that either of us know anything by looking at an ultrasound, you know, it looks <laughs> like an alien thing, you know, to us there, um, as well. But then she turned around and she said, okay, you know, I'm going to show you the baby now. And uh, uh, she said, that's one baby and that's another baby and that's another baby. And I just thought, what is she talking about? You know, I, I feel like a fool saying this now, but I actually thought, okay, she just must be, she must mean that she's showing us one baby from different viewpoints. And then, uh, so I, I actually asked her that. And I feel so embarrassed, you know, doctor, oh my gosh, <laughs> not realizing what she was saying, or maybe not wanting to realize, or just, I, you know, I, yeah. And she said, no, there's three babies there. <laughs> And I just, I think my initial response was, where are we going to put them all? <laughs> I only have two arms and two Honestly, yeah. No, no, that was Ricky's next thing. He was like, how am I going to hold them? I've got, I've only got two arms. Yeah, we were just in a state of shock. Wonderful shock. Wonderful shock. Yeah, in that moment, it was pure joy because we knew that the babies were okay there were there was a heartbeat there were three heartbeats um and yeah it was amazing and can I ask what I, what happens in that situation because triplets is is obviously quite an unusual situation yeah. I mean twins is unusual and triplets is exceptionally unusual were you kind of immediately referred to a consultant or kind of put into more of a high-risk bracket or was it a case of well, let's see how your pregnancy goes to a certain point and then we'll do something. I mean, that same day, um, you know, because it was through fetal medicine and the fetal medicine midwife came to see me and she was like, don't worry, we've got great consultants here and you'll be seen in the fetal medicine clinic. So I think already they were sort of, they put me into a consultant clinic and were treating me as high risk. But at that point, there was no sort of mention about risks really to do with it and even though I'm sure deep down I knew the risks I I didn't acknowledge them at all that day was just bliss and my brain went from I could I could see them I could see them you know all three of them propped up on the sofa you know with pillows around them sort of uh, I could see it all and we just went into practicality mode we live in a flat you know we were like okay that's it we're gonna have to move house need a different car everything's going to change um yeah and so how did your pregnancy progress after that point so after that point we had we had one day of entire bliss and it was the next day I went into work and I was I was doing my fertility a community gynae gynae job which had a, a lot of sort of a fertility aspect in it and my boss that I work for my supervisor she's amazing at what she does very knowledgeable I respect her a lot and I told her and she um she told me that I needed to be really careful and that actually there could be a lot of things wrong with this pregnancy and that was a huge shock to me and she said that okay you need to actually be signed off work um you need to think about what you want to do um you need to find out you know what's the makeup of this pregnancy you, you've got some really big decisions to make. And I think that really hit at home. And I think I'm really grateful for her now for, for being so honest with me. But at the time that was really hard for me to hear. And it was really hard for me to be off sick as well, because I didn't feel sick. I was, I was pregnant. I'm not sick. And that's when things changed. I was at home, um, after that and, we were sort of fed into the fetal medicine clinic very quickly. And it was that same week 
we had a, that consultant appointment and I remember the consultant, he knew we were both doctors and he basically said that we needed to go away and do some reading and decide what to do, um, you know, whether to reduce the pregnancy, whether to continue. And that was really hard as well because actually in that situation, we weren't doctors, we weren't doctors, we were parents and Yes, yeah. is that is that something that's done with every triplet pregnancy, or was that because of something they'd seen specifically on your scan? So I think every triplet pregnancy is is a high risk pregnancy. Mm-hmm. However, it's also to do with the makeup of the pregnancy itself. So how many placentas there are, how many sacs, and basically because so two of our babies shared a placenta, and that that was you know the high risk side of it uh-huh. that's that's my understanding i'm not i'm no specialist but i think you know essentially because the babies shared a placenta what that means is when the babies were forming those two babies would have been the fertilized egg would have had to split and it's the splitting of that egg that can sometimes go wrong and lead to abnormalities in the babies. And I think that's that's why they deemed that as the high risk part. So, yeah. And basically, when when that doctor was talking about reducing the pregnancy or at least giving that as an option, in their eyes, the safest thing would have been to reduce the, both of our identical twins and just leave one. Uh-huh. And, and once it's, once someone has shown you that you have the potential to have three babies to take home, it's really hard to then, you know, uh, really hard to accept that, okay, fine, we'll just take one home. You know, it's just. It just feels like an impossible decision as well. I mean, how can. Yeah. And, and kind of a decision. I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know how you felt, but. Almost a decision. I don't know. Did you want that taken out of your hands? Because it, it feels different if you know if, if a doctor says this is what has to be done, or you know your baby is not going to survive. That feels like a different situation from well, here you've got three little babies in here. Which ones do you want to get rid of? Exactly. I mean, it's so heartless. Isn't exactly. It? And I, oh, Alison, I think that was the darkest point of my life. I was I was at home. I was off sick. Ricky, so my husband was going to work. Um, I don't know how, how bless him. I don't know how he was doing it, but he was. And I, you know what? I think one of us had to, you know, keep going um, for the both of us. And I'm sure he was breaking on the inside as well. And I just remember it was winter. It was dark. He used to go to work. I would still be in bed. I would stay in bed for most of the day and then I knew know he was coming home in the evening and think oh gosh I better get out of bed you know like three o'clock just to you know pretend almost that I've been up showered and done something but I hadn't I'd been in bed all day and been crying or just it was horrible I, I I look back now and I was really really depressed I was in such a dark place because I didn't know what to do I didn't want to make this decision. I wanted someone to tell me, Priya, Ricky, this is what you need to do. It's going to be really hard, but this is what you need to do for your babies. I didn't want to make that decision at all. And did the hospital give you any support or anyone to talk to so you could kind of talk through some of no, this? No, no. Uh, we had the fetal medicine midwives as our port of contact, but there wasn't anyone for us to talk to. And I really wish that there was. I I was ringing up my GP for sick notes. And I even then, like, I really wish as well, like I'd had a bit more support from that end as well. They did acknowledge, they were like, no, you're going through something really hard, sort of, you know, keep in touch with us. But actually, when, when you're in that darker place, you need someone to be chasing you because you you don't have the courage and you don't have the strength to ask for help. You're in a really dark place. And I think now going forwards, you know, if I ever had a patient that's going through anything like that, I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to ring them. If they haven't come to see me, I'm going to do that. And I that's, yeah. 
it was actually the person that's in charge of my training. It was her that said, why don't you ask for a second opinion? Why don't you go to London and ask to be seen? And, you know, there's a professor there. Why don't you go and see him? And that's what I asked to do. And that's very, again, I, it's quite out of character for me because I always worry like, oh, what's that other person going to think? I've asked for a second opinion that it's going to mean that they won't like me anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But I just realized that I shouldn't, it doesn't matter. No one else matters here. I need help to make a decision for my babies. And yeah, so we asked for that referral. So you went to see a different specialist consultant in London and did they, did they give you the same advice? What, what did they tell you? He was much better. Sorry, no, that's not better, but I think because he has more experience seeing triplet pregnancies, you know, um, and he did give one extra option. So he is, he uh, does a procedure that very few places do in the world where they use a laser to try and save one of the identical twins and the singleton. So the, the baby that had its own placenta and own sac and, and one of the identical twins. So he basically, as well as the other options, he offered that option. And he said, you know, if you're willing, if you're willing, um, why not try to do that option? Because at least then you would have the chance of taking home two babies because he also explained that the chances of me taking home three babies, three healthy babies was very, very unlikely. I think he gave, uh, do excuse me if I'm getting the statistics slightly wrong now, but I think he said there was basically a 25% chance if I continued with three um, of at least one of the children having cerebral palsy. And I just, I wanted to try and give my babies the best chance possible of having a healthy life. Um, and so that, yeah, we, we decided to go with him because I, the advice that I wanted was the advice that they would give their daughter. I, that's, and that's what I kept sell, t- saying to them. Like, I want to know what you would tell your daughter to do. That's yeah. Yeah. Or your wife or yeah. Whoever. Yeah. And I just needed someone to tell me that to feel vesting yes, in it almost. exactly yeah mm-hmm. like I didn't uh, yeah I don't want to be just like a number on a piece of paper that's I mean truly that is a it's an impossible decision to make it's a decision no one yeah. should have to make um and yeah I just I can't imagine how hard that was and was there a time scale in terms of doing this procedure they wanted then? to try and do it ideally by 13 weeks and so actually I was all well, the day that I went for that London appointment, um, I was pretty much almost 13 weeks then. And so they said, actually, in an ideal situation, they would want to do it today, you know, or very, very soon. Um, yeah, yeah. So because I, the longer we'd left it, the more chance I would have of miscarrying all of the babies. Okay. So that was why we actually had it done that same day. We spent the whole day in London. I think I was scanned about seven times. Yeah. Wow, that that must have been wow, incredible day. So you literally you've gone in thinking you're going to get a second opinion, and then suddenly you're in hospital having this procedure done. Yeah, I mean they did it all as an you know in the same clinic. It, I didn't have to be admitted or anything like that. And did they were they able to tell you about the outcome of that sort of as as soon as they'd done it? So yeah, they scanned me straight away, and there were two heartbeats still there. So they were like, "That's good." We knew, you know, when, when they'd consented us and explained the options that there was a 50% chance that the remaining identical twin would die in the next two weeks. So we knew that it was really risky, but that, you know, we were, we, we had no option but to take on that risk. And so, then it was a waiting game. We knew we had to have a scan in a week or two weeks' time to see whether we had two heartbeats or one heartbeat. And when we had that scan in one or two weeks' time, we did we did have two heartbeats. However, 
as as with everything in that pregnancy, it wasn't wasn't as simple as that. I wish it had been, but they they found that I had lost the waters um, around the remaining identical twins. So there was a bit of water around that baby, but not much. And they had warned me that um, I would pass some waters that night after that procedure, but that it would be the waters of the baby that we'd lost. Um, but however, I think now in hindsight, what they think is probably the sacs of those two babies were attached. And so by piercing the sack of one baby, it pierced the sack of, of both. So, yeah. And I'm like, I'm no, I'm not a medical expert. So all of my knowledge really comes from talking to parents <laughs> and reading. But I think the, and the amniotic fluid is really important yes. in terms of like developing baby's lungs, isn't it? That's the main thing. It also helps just gives them space as well. So um, Aria, so our remaining identical twin, she her, her feet and everything were quite inward and she had scoliosis, so she had a bent spine because that water wasn't there to keep her, you know, in, in a good position. And and yeah, exactly for lung development, it's key. So what did they tell you at that point then in terms of her prognosis? Point. Um uh, at that point they told me that um I would carry both babies to most probably to term, so to you know, thirty-seven weeks or forty between thirty-seven to forty weeks. Um, but most likely that she would pass away after delivery if the fluid didn't get better. Now the other thing that they said was because the fluid had most likely you know, been lost because of the, the the sack being punctured, that there was a chance that maybe the sack might heal itself and the fluid might reaccumulate. So it was there was that slight glimmer of hope. Um but I I just couldn't believe that I couldn't believe that how how could they know that, you know, she was going to pass away after she was born? Like I'd I don't think I wanted to accept that and I, I, I couldn't accept that. Can I ask how you kind of felt during this pregnancy in terms of, I guess, preparation and thinking about about bringing your, you know, your children home? Did you, you know, obviously a, a first time, a normal yeah. first time long with a nice, you know, single baby, low risk pregnancy. And, you you know, you do all these exciting things that, like preparing the nursery and mm-hmm. going out and buying your car seat and baby goes and all, all of those things. And. I guess you didn't know, you know, you had this hope that you'll be bringing home two babies, but they also said, well, there might only be one. And how did that affect you? And, and what was going through your head, I guess, during yeah. during those months? I hated it. As in, so I loved, don't get me wrong, I loved carrying more than one baby and I loved having my babies inside me and I would I would give anything to go back to that. However, the preparation for babies, I hated. I absolutely hated it because of not knowing, you know, how many babies we were going to bring home. I didn't want to have to come home and have to dismantle the spare cot or give away the spare car seats. So we didn't, we didn't buy, we didn't buy any of that stuff. We had one cot and my plan was if we bring them both home, they'll sleep together in that one cot. We didn't get a car seat. We didn't do anything. Um, we looked at buggies and uh, it was horrible having to explain to the, you know, mother care was, was open. Then we, I remember going to mother care and, you know, saying like, Oh, we need, we need a double buggy, but we might need a single buggy. So we want to look at both and. Just it would take people aback, like they just wouldn't know what to say. I mean, I don't think I would have known what to say either, so I don't blame them. But it was just horrible. I hated it. I, I all of that stuff I felt that was supposed to be exciting didn't find exciting. Yeah, and I mean, it must have, you know. I think perhaps even from that moment you had to make that that decision early on. It must have just ripped the joy out of that pregnancy for yeah, you. Yeah, it did. It did I think that first trimester well no longer than that first trimester I've just felt like it had been taken away from me of like that joy of that first pregnancy I felt 
had been completely taken away and I didn't know what to tell people. I didn't, uh, and that was another big thing. So we didn't, we didn't make an announcement or anything like that. Obviously our close group of, you know, people knew, you know, our parents and close friends, they, they all knew what was going on, but, you know, we're Indian. We come from a big community, big, big extended family. And of course, you know, our parents wanted to be able to tell people, you know, they're expecting it, but just didn't know what to tell people. And then once, once we, you know, at about 16 or 20, 16 weeks or 20 weeks, sorry, I can't remember exactly. Once we, knew that we had two babies and that I probably would be carrying them to around term. We, Ricky and I sort of had a chat about what, what do we tell people? And so we decided that we would tell people that we had a triplet pregnancy because I wanted all three babies acknowledged. And also it's amazing. You know, you don't hear about triplet babe pregnancies. I, I wanted people to know this wonderful miracle that had happened to us. And so we said to, you know, our parents, you can tell people we had three babies, but we've lost one. And people don't need to know the details of how we lost that one baby and that we're, we're carrying twins now, but that one baby's quite unwell and we we don't know what's going to happen and yeah and we also did say to our parents we don't want lots of phone calls from people like prying and asking us lots of questions and uh us having to say it again and again and again we don't want that we just um and I think so firstly the reason for not telling people that we'd chosen to have a reduction was because so we didn't want people to think that we'd killed our baby um just because that's how some people might see it we're not ricky and i aren't particularly religious but we're we're jain and jain jainism it's a bit it's a bit like buddhism in some senses it's a bit like hinduism in some senses but it, part of it is that you don't hurt other souls and we had we'd hurt one of our own souls that we had created and i just didn't know how people would react react to that and so that's why it seemed kinder to ourselves and that just to tell people that we'd lost one baby. And is, is, is baby loss and, and I guess, you know, sort of miscarriage, in particular, all that kind of stuff, is that, was that something that was really discussed in your kind of culture and stuff? Not at all. So it's, not, it's not something that's acknowledged within that, no. obviously, sort of wider umbrella of, of do no harm. No, I've... Uh, I was trying to think about this before we did this recording and I don't think I've before my pregnancy heard about anyone in my extended family or community having lost a baby or talked about miscarriage or anything. And, you know, to think that it's not happening is, you know, you'd, ha you'd have to be completely naive because we know the statistics. We also know that, you know, BAME communities are more at risk of, you know, stillbirths, et cetera. So it's happening, but where are these people and who, who is supporting these people and who are they talking to? Is, is that leading to more mental health problems because they don't have anyone to speak to? I just, I can't believe that it's not happening. I just, I, I, yeah. And I don't know why it's not spoken about. It's, yeah. Is it something that you were, felt able to talk to your parents about? Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, really lucky that my parents have been our biggest rock, I think, to get us through this. And both sets of parents have been really understanding. And yeah, that that's not actually been an issue at all. It's, uh, yeah. I will come, we might come back to that yeah. a bit later, but in terms of, so getting back to, to your pregnancy, mm. so you're planning on a kind of uh, a sort of full-term birth. Were they, were they planning on inducing you early or anything like that? Yeah. So as the pregnancy went on, there were some sort of more issues that cropped up and towards the end, uh, around sort of 32-ish weeks, I, uh, I'd i been losing some fluid, um, which I'm not going to lie, I thought it was we. So it'd been going on for about two or three weeks. And I just thought I, because of the pressure of my stomach, had uh, 
stress incontinence. Um, <laughs> it became apparent <laughs> that it wasn't, and I was leaking amniotic fluid. Um, and so I was um, admitted around that point, and they made a plan of inducing me at 34 weeks and just keeping an eye out for signs of infection, etc. in the meantime. So I actually had a plan to be induced. I think it was around 34 weeks and three days, something like that. But actually, I went into labor um, naturally at 34 weeks, exactly. Gosh, those babies didn't want to say They didn't. That. They must have heard the doctor say, that's it, 34 weeks, yeah. got to get out. <laughs> um, yeah. And how, how did you feel when that happened? Sort of, I guess, I, guess, I mean, I guess the, the natural nerves around A, going into labour for the first time, B, it being kind of so early in terms of the, the sort of gestation, but then also you've got at the back of your mind, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen yeah. with, my, with my babies at the end of it. I think so. I just remember, firstly, I didn't realize I was in labor. That was again, slightly embarrassing, but, um, I think I just remember once we'd realized, okay, going to the hospital, I became just, uh, obsessed by asking. I just kept telling Ricky, you have to find out if there are two NICU beds there. Like we need two NICU beds. Um, uh, so that's the neonatal intensive care unit because, you know, I, I knew the babies would most probably need to go there. And I think that's all I became focused on. And I was panicked, but actually, you know what? It was, a, it was a controlled panic because I knew, I knew they were going to come early anyway. 34 weeks actually was a pretty good point to get them to. So from, from them, from that perspective, I wasn't too, um, worried. And I don't think I, I don't think the reality of the decisions we were then going to have to make had hit me. I don't think, I think I was just going through the motions of, okay, need to get babies out and need to make sure that there are two beds for them. That was, that was it. I didn't think and about it. I think decisions. in some ways that's a necessary thing because you do, I mean, you know, going through labour is, is a big thing. You do need to be focused on, on that one thing, yeah. don't you? And actually I had a, a really nice labour. I had an epidural in because uh, there was obviously a high risk of having a C-section, but they were going to try and deliver the babies naturally if they could, um, just because the squeeze of going through the canal would help their lungs. And also because baby one um, was in a head down position. So, you know, there was, they thought it would, uh, a vaginal birth would be possible. Yeah. So how did that go then? <laughs> um, it went, it was all, it was all going swimmingly. And then when it came to pushing time, baby one, so Adia just wasn't coming down quite far enough. So they had to use forceps to get her out and she came out tiny and screaming and uh, was placed on me and then whisked away to, oh. to the, the, the resuscitator. Um, and can I just say at this point, there were, there were about 20 plus people in this room. Um, so there was my mum and my husband, uh, Ricky, and there were two neonatal teams, one for each baby. And there was an obstetric team and it was crazy. Uh, I think actually, you know, at that point there were less than 20 and as things kind of escalated, they got more and more people came in. So then one baby was delivered and then they had to get next baby out. And we, we knew at that point that baby, um, so Aria was lying in an oblique position. So she was at a diagonal in my tummy. Okay. So to, to try and deliver her, they were going to turn her while she was in my stomach and try and get her into a head down position so that again, she could be delivered that way. And again, I have counseled patients for um, having their baby turned in their stomach. And I tell them that it's a bit uncomfortable. It was. Is that a bit uncomfortable it, in adversity? It was <laughs> indeed. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was painful. <laughs> um, 
but essentially she wouldn't stay down in a head position, uh, head down position. Um, so they managed to get her into a legs down position and they popped the CTG. So that's that monitor that whether they put on your tummy to monitor the heartbeat and her heartbeat had dropped significantly. So it became a very sort of emergency situation where they had to get her out there and then. So there was no time for me to try and push her out. And I think that was possibly one of the most horrifying things because I'm so sorry if this is too much information. Um, no, go for it. We talk about everything. I just felt someone put their hand inside me, you know, trying to feel for their legs. And I mean, inside, inside, like this was inside my womb and I could yeah. feel them. I know it's a completely different oh. situation, but I had to have a manual placental removal. So I've been there <laughs> and I didn't have an epidural. So, oh, yeah. it, OK, um, so you know they, what well, I'm they, they about. did at the end. But I had like a good few people shoving their hands up there. So it, it's it's not fun. And I could you could you can feel everything. Oh, my gosh. And I could feel them grappling is the only word I can think of that truly describes it. I, and then I felt them grab her legs and pull her out. And um then there was silence and she was um she was put on me and it was very brief and then they took her to the resuscitator at the back and I can't even really did remember they, what did they tell you yeah did they tell you when she came out that she you know that she was alive that she was breathing did they tell you anything uh, I I'm pretty sure she told me that she was alive um, and, and mm-hmm. you know, there was some respiratory effort, but they needed to obviously examine her. And they took her to the resuscitator and I, I saw the consultant take Ricky aside and, and I could see sort of Ricky looking quite shell-shocked and I, t- I, I could see him saying, you know, you need to, go and ask prayer you need to go and ask prayer and um the consultant came over to me and uh, he said like so her her heart is beating but it's very slow and she's making very little respiratory effort so making little effort to breathe um but also that there were some abnormalities so we knew we had in the last week before the pregnancy, some more abnormalities had shown up on the scans. So um, she uh, basically didn't have an anus. So she had an imperforate anus and part of her bowel was on the in- outside of her body um, in the umbilical cord and part, uh, her bladder was also on the outside of her body as well. But that was just around her stomach. She otherwise looked like a completely normal, beautiful baby with the softest skin and little blonde hairs over her face. Just, yeah. So I don't want anyone thinking that, oh, she had these abnormalities. She must have looked really weird. She didn't. She didn't at all. And I just remember the consultant saying that to me. And I just, Ricky and I had had this conversation we knew that if the abnormalities were to such an extent where she wasn't going to survive surgery or wasn't going to survive being intubated, we didn't want her being messed around with. We didn't want her having tubes poked in her and prodded in her if it was all going to be futile. And I didn't want her going up to NICU with strangers if if it wasn't all going to lead to a positive outcome. And the consultant you know, did say she's not, we don't think she's going to survive intubation. If we take her to NICU, she's probably not going to last very long. And so I just remember saying, just get her off that resuscitator and I want to hold my baby. Um, And so she was brought to us and she was put on me. And even though she was fighting so hard to you know breathe and she was fading even then she knew she was on her mummy and she was on me and she she moved she nuzzled her neck you know nuzzled her head into my neck and I don't think I will ever forget that feeling she knew she knew I was her mum 
And I will always take that as a sign of like, it's okay, mommy. It's okay. You know? Um, yeah. And that's, oh goodness. If you hadn't have had enough to deal with that pregnancy, it's just another, another impossible choice. What do you do? But I, I can totally, I mean, obviously I can't understand because I haven't been in that situation, but I really, yeah, I mean, I think in that situation, perhaps I'd have made the same yeah. decision because there is something about seeing your child being taken away and, and not even having that time to spend yes. with them, I yeah. guess, and then um, sort of being whipped out of you, taken away, and then finding out they didn't make yeah. it, whereas you've got a little bit of time, a little bit of precious time yeah. to spend with her, and she got that little bit of precious time with, with her mum and dad. Um, and that's what she knew in her short life. Yeah. And again, you know, like how we were saying at the beginning of not wanting to make that decision ourselves, like wanting the experts to tell them, tell us truly like what they would do and what the chances are. That's what we needed in that moment. We needed a decisive doctor to tell us the truth. And yeah. <sighs> Because before, you know, in the week before when they'd said to us, you know, okay, bowel, baby's bowel might be slightly on the outside of the body, but, you know, if she comes out fighting hard to breathe, she could be taken to Great Ormond Street. So we had a plan. We had a plan that, you know, yeah. Ricky would go to Great Ormond Street. Maybe my dad would go with him or my sister and I would stay. And yeah, we had this plan, but, but we also had a plan that if, if she wasn't you know, breathing and we, we just, we wanted to spend as much time as we could with her, with her mummy and daddy. And I, I guess to make the decision, well, not, not that particular decision, but in terms of, I guess, how you spent the next few hours yeah. um, and, and the rest of that day, um, obviously you've got her with you, but you've also got her sister yeah. Upstairs in the NICU, yeah, or yeah, upstairs, yeah. or wherever it is, um, and how how did you balance that? I guess how how did you decide what to do, and obviously ma- making sure yeah. that you know Adia was was doing yeah. well and okay, and seeing her, um, but also taking as much time as you could to spend time with Aria. So I, I mean, at the time, so Adia had already been whisked off, and I, I carry a lot of guilt that none of us went with her um so I hope that she can forgive us for that one day and I well I, I more hope that we can figure forgive ourselves for it because um I'm sure she will understand we just stayed with Aria Aria I think was she wasn't alive very long after that it was about um an hour or so but even even after she passed away you know, we stayed in the hospital, we stayed on labour ward, Aria stayed with us in a cold cot. And like you say, it was really hard trying to find the right balance of staying with Aria or going to Niku to see Adya. And I don't know if we got the balance right. I I, I wish I'd spent more time with Aria. I wish, because sometimes we would have been in the room, but she would have been in the cold cot. And I wish maybe I shouldn't have left her in the cold cot so long. I wish I'd just held her that entire time. But then I know that wouldn't have been good for her either. I just, I don't know how we balanced it because I, I needed to go to Niku so much to express. And then, you know, there was this tiny little baby there that needed us. And in my mind, in my mind, Aria was just, she was just sleeping. She was sleeping in Labourwood. Uh, sleeping and waiting for us to get back. And it did just feel like I was being tugged in too many directions and I just sort of went into automatic pilot. But yeah, we stayed on Labour Ward with Aria for uh, three or four days after that. And then we we knew that obviously she needed to go somewhere colder. I didn't want her to, but we knew that she needed to. Um, and so we, we, we decided that on the 21st of May, that's, that's our wedding anniversary as well. We, we decided that, look, that day is really special for us. And let's, let's say goodbye to her on that day. And she, she can go to the mortuary on that day because then 
that day holds a lot of significance for us. Um, yeah, so we we had a little um, naming ceremony for her in the morning. Um, a Hindu priest came and just sort of said a few words and we managed to get Adya down from Niku for a short while and we also had the Remember My Baby photographs done that day, uh, well, that morning just after the um, naming ceremony and it was just really special, yeah. And at that point you had to say goodbye to her and and I guess at some point um, you returned home with Adya. Mm. Can we just move on to talk yeah. a bit about grief? You, I mean, your whole pregnancy must have had this underlying grief in since, you know, you, you've had this, your first baby who you've lost early in the pregnancy, mm. then you've lost one at birth. And grieving both of those children whilst dealing with the, the daily <laughs> struggles of parenting a living baby oh, for yes. the first time must have been incredibly difficult. How, how did your grief kind of I guess progress over those weeks and months yeah. um and how how did you juggle that not sure I did in all honesty you know when people ask me like how how have you grieved or I don't think I have I just I, I knew I knew that this tiny little baby needed me and I just had to keep going somehow and I I had a lot of guilt about the fact that I wasn't able to grieve for Aria and Adira and I wasn't able to go to the cemetery and the grave a lot and I carried so much guilt because I wanted to be able to do that but Adia was tiny she was very unsettled a lot of the time and I actually like then used to avoid going to the cemetery because because I'd not gone a lot um, we hadn't done a lot to the grave. It, it, I could see that other people had done X, Y, and Z to, you know, other babies' graves. And it just, I, I almost felt more guilty that when we went there, you know, it didn't look how it, I wanted it to. And, you know, that, that highlighted the fact that we hadn't been there a lot and weren't able to go there as much. And I think, it just became really difficult. Um, we tried to find some time to grieve by sort of talking to our closest friends about what had happened. And even now, I think we try to make sure that we have time to talk about what's gone on and to make sure that the girls are a part of our life. And I guess that in itself is a way of processing it and grieving now but I think I genuinely think in those those acute you know initial days weeks even months I don't think we did grieve and you know I, I guess that was perhaps put on hold because you know you had this newborn yeah. a newborn baby to to deal with as she said she she was kind of consuming all of your yeah. attention as any newborn baby does so I don't know I, I mean maybe it's a it's a kind of slower yeah. process or it, it must be a different experience I think it kind of hit me um around August or what there would have been three or three months or something down the line I don't exactly know what changed but so we hadn't organized a funeral until that point um so Aria had was still in the mortuary at the hospital because I basically, I, I'd always said, like, I want to get Adia home. I want to, you know, get her in a better place. I want to, because I want to give the time to planning this funeral properly. And then I don't know what changed. It suddenly hit me that we had left one of our babies in the hospital. How could we have left her there? And for that long, like, what, you know, why hadn't we organized a funeral? And I became very sort of angry at myself that we'd done that. And so then, you know, I was focused on the fact that we need to get a funeral organized. I want her to have a nice resting place. And I think maybe that was part of the grieving then. Then organizing the funeral was really special, actually. So, yeah. And we talked a bit earlier about the kind of the culture and your religion and things yeah. that were grown up in and the lack of, um, I guess, acknowledgement of baby mm. loss. And 
sort of after so after you've got home and you know people obviously know that you know you you initially had triplets and now you've brought one baby yeah. home was there any more acknowledgement for that then and did that I don't know, acknowledgement or lack of acknowledgement affect how connected or disconnected you felt from your kind of community? Oh, yes. Um, it just wasn't mentioned <laughs> for the most part. There's there's probably a handful of people that have mentioned it. But don't get me wrong, um, our closest core group, you know, have always mentioned things and they continue to do so. And we are so grateful for their support. Um but for the most part, even in the initial stages, even now, having set up a blog, having, you know, done X, Y, and Z to try and show people that I want them to talk to me about it, it's still not changed anything. And it has made me feel very disconnected to, to the yeah, community. And it's made me... I don't know if this makes me a bad person and I'm sorry if it does, but it's made me prioritize those people that have shown, you know, have, have talked about what's happened and yeah, whether that's right or wrong, I that don't know. I think it's self-protection and. Yeah. But I also, I think that's perfectly natural. I mean, you know, if someone has supported you, you know, you feel able to then support them, yeah. but you know, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I think everyone has had that kind of experience, mm. you know, whatever, you know, whatever culture they're in, that there have been people who have, they have lost friends, yeah. you know, as, as part of that. And in some cases, you know, kind of lost a connection with the family yeah. um, and family members as well. Yeah. Um, and I just, and you do, your priorities change. They don't do, they? they do. And I, uh, you know, I understand, you know, initially, why people didn't want to pester us with questions and this and that. And because you know what, we weren't in the right headspace to even deal with those. Or, uh, um, so I, I understand that. But, um, and I also understand by shutting ourselves away a bit, both during the pregnancy and in the initial stages after the girls were born, you know, that also maybe kept, uh, made people stay at arm's length. However, you know, when we were in a better place, we were forcing ourselves to go to some family events and functions and just it wasn't mentioned at all. And you know what? It's so much harder having to paint on a face and pretend you're okay. It's so much harder mm-hmm. and it requires so much more strength and emotional and physical energy to do that. I, I just wish that actually people would realise that it's okay. It's okay to talk about it and it's okay for me to cry. It doesn't matter if me or Ricky cry. It's better for us to get a little bit sad and talk about what is happening than bottle it up. And mm-hmm. I think that is something that has to inherently change within our culture and community, not just to do with baby loss, but to do with mental health and, you know, anything that requires a show of emotions it's okay it's okay for someone to show emotions it's not a weakness it doesn't show vulnerability it's it's character building um yeah and you said I think you said sort of earlier on or you mentioned that you're not particularly religious but have you how have you kind of I guess kept some of your cultural traditions or adapted them to involve all three of your children yeah. in family life. So um so there's there's a a fest I think it's a festival, but yeah, it's a it's something called Raksha Bandhan, um, which is like a Hindu uh tradition. Um and the the Jain version of that is something called Pasli. And that basically uh, celebrates the bond and relationship between brothers and sisters now now growing up you know i i have a sister we've we've always felt we've always felt very strongly that why is it just between brothers and sisters we're gonna do it between sister and sister so you know we've adapted that and then ricky and i have also felt that it's very important for adia to celebrate that relationship as well and part of that um part of that tradition is that the sister gives a 
a decorated like uh almost like a friendship bracelet to the brother and that's that it's it's just a simple piece of string with it maybe with a little bit of decoration on it just to show their bond and you know sometimes the brother gives a present it's that's not you know um necessary but yeah so what we do is we take Adia to um Arya's grave and she ties a raki so that's what it's called this almost like a friendship bracelet um on Arya's grave and we we tie three um there and so just that's that's our version of Raksha Bandhan. and the other thing that we do is before Diwali um uh, every year I think the day before um there's this thing called Nived. And again, like it's not something that I ever would take part in, you know, before the girls were born, but I felt very strongly um, since the girls were born because it's to do with remembering your ancestors. So you make a little bit of certain foods and then you sort of offer it to your ancestors and you light a candle, you say a prayer. Um, and again, we've done our own adaptation of that. So we'll have Aria's photo there. But what we did last year was we, um, it was, you know, we had Aria's photo, but I wrote little names of other babies that we know that have, uh, died like, and, you know, mm-hmm. through, through charities and things of people that we've met or other, you know, family members, um, just anyone that's really sort of touched our lives, meant something to us. And um, so we lit a candle for each of those people and wrote their little ne- names on hearts. And um, so, you know, we just try to adapt these traditions in a way that works for us, in a way that I think Adia will enjoy. And going to the grave is a big part of that. I know that's not necessarily to do with our culture. And in fact, that's not in our culture at all, because normally uh, people are cremated. But um, that's a big part for us and it brings us so much joy to see Adia running towards the grave saying Didi, Didi, Didi means sister in Hindi. Um, it, that, that whatever sadness there may be from going to her grave is, is washed away by that, the happiness that that brings us. Was that part of your decision to... Um, have a grave for her rather than sort of bury her rather than cremating her as might have been more traditional well, then to have that place for her. well I, I I think during the pregnancy when I was just you know brain going into overdrive about what might happen and this and that the thought of cremating one of my babies made me feel physically sick and so I, I'd always sort of thought okay I think I want her buried um, also I want to have somewhere to go to which I know actually you can still do when you have a cremation, but uh, that, that was part of my thought process. But actually when, when the girls were born and, you know, then Aria died and my mum just happened to talk to a Hindu priest and actually apparently within our culture, children and babies don't get cremated. I, I'm not exactly sure why, but apparently they don't. Apparently they get buried. So actually it kind of fit with all of that and, Actually, when, when we came to organizing the funeral, then I, I, I also, I also said I didn't want her buried either because I, the thought of her being in the ground, that uh, it really disturbs me. Actually, it still does. Like, oh, I, I wanted her to stay in the mortuary and to be kept perfect there. Um, I knew that that's. Unfortunately, it's that's not, the one, that's the one decision exactly. you, you can't. Exactly, that's, <laughs> you that's can't not make. the done thing, is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it, yeah, but I, I love, I love her grave now. It's it's a real place of solitude. I, I never find. I know some people go and have things to say. I often don't. And again, I carry a lot of guilt that, oh, I should have lots to say. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. But I think I need to learn to be kinder to myself, that there is no right way. There's no wrong way. But I like just going and being. And I went there a couple of days ago because it was the anniversary of her funeral. And I took lots of photos of the flowers that are there. And it's just beautiful, just like she is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, we are, I'm afraid we are out of time. But thank you so much for coming no, on to the podcast. Thank today. you for it's having me. Wonderful talking to you. Would you like to just finish by telling people where they can find out more about your journey and your daughters and connect? Of course, of course. Um, yeah, please. I'm, I'm on Instagram. Um, and I'm, I've got a blog. I'm very bad at updating both. <laughs> so please bear with me. Um, it's, uh, the blog is, um, our one of three.com and um, the Instagram page is the same. It's at uh, our one of three. Um, and I, I'm sure Alison will put up some links anyway. But yeah, like I said, I'm very bad at updating it. But if anyone ever wants to talk to me about anything, I'm, you can always contact me on there and I will definitely get back to you even if I'm not updating things. Um, yeah, I, I'm always free to talk. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I will include those links in the show notes. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.